Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read the first 14 verses with a particular attention on the first five. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Remember that Paul is now into the heart of his argument in this letter. He has acknowledged his authority. He has or defended his authority. He has expressed his astonishment towards the uh, readers of this letter about their leaving of the things that they had been taught about Jesus Christ. And then most recently, he had laid before them the beauty of the gospel when he said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And now he continues on that theme at verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, and all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. That's for the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 1 through five, you foolish Galatians, and what follows. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, Paul's opening words in our text are easy enough to read, but probably were not easy for his original readers to hear. I mean, imagine. Uh, a pastor, myself, or any other pastor, a guest pastor, coming here and standing before you and starting his sermon by saying, what's wrong with you people? How can you be so stupid? Really, that's what Paul's saying. When he speaks about foolishness, he speaks about it in the context of the Scriptures. You know that in the Bible, foolishness is a theme. You think of the book of Proverbs and how many times foolishness and the fool are referenced there. You think about Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
The, the fool is a significant character, you might say, in the unfolding drama of redemption. And the fool is not someone who is mentally incapable of thinking. Rather, the fool is someone who's given all the right information, given all that they need to know, and still refuses to believe, refuses to use their faculties, refuses to use their brain to think clearly. They purposefully, you might say, shut their brain off. And Paul says, Galatian Christians, how can you be foolish? That's a pretty cutting, pretty sharp word. And then he adds to it, who has bewitched you? It's a fascinating word. It's a word that comes from the world of magic, of, of spirits, of witches and warlocks, of someone who would put a curse on another person, who would look at them with their, their evil eye. In fact, the word evil eye is really related, very closely related to our translation or to the word that's translated in our Bibles as bewitched. It's as though Paul were saying, who's put an evil eye upon you? Now, of course, Paul knows that there's no such thing as magic or evil eyes. Don't misunderstand. But what he's saying is, and it may well be that in the Galatian community, this was a common thing. Certainly in the Gentile community, in the Greek and Roman community, the idea of, of these sorts of curses were probably a, a, a living reality for people. And so Paul is saying, listen, you Galatian Christians, you must be under a spell. That's how dumb you're being. You cannot possibly think that you are free to recognize and to understand what's going on. If you think you know what's happening, you're the greater fool because you are under the spell of some wicked, some powerful warlock. warlock. That's, how, that's how dumb, that's how, how foolish you Christians are being. Now imagine whether it's myself or anyone else coming out of the pulpit here and starting their sermon that way. It would certainly raise, I think, the tension level a little, and it would probably raise our heart rates a little, and it would probably create some controversy. How are you people so dumb? Now, the reason why that might cause trouble is because we live in a rather politically correct environment, and telling the truth to people isn't always the thing that we want to say. And, and in a politically correct environment, you certainly are supposed to be gentle, especially with people like the Galatian Christians. They're new Christians. These are people that are Christians for a very, very short period of time. And, and they don't have the generations, the decades, the libraries, the history of the faith that Jews had, that Paul had, that we certainly have. These are tender sprouts, just barely pushing through the soil. And, and how can it be that Paul should be so angry to uh, condemn them. I mean, they are being harassed by a group called the Judaizers who themselves are theologically astute, well-trained, and able to defend their version of the faith with great convincing arguments. The Judaizers knew their Bible inside and out. How could these newly minted Christians be expected to stand up against such well-equipped opponents? Shouldn't Paul be much nicer to these people and say, guys, guys, hey, come on, let me just, you're being led astray. People are going to make your life miserable. You should, shouldn't listen to them. Listen to me, Paul. I'm, I'm so much nicer than them. Isn't that what we expect? Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we think people should do? 
We don't like it when the elder comes and speaks a, a, a direct word to us. We don't like it when we are told to repent and believe. We don't think that's right or fair or kind because of the world in which we live. Or maybe it's because of our own sense of self-preservation or even the preservation of those that we love, those who have turned away from the Lord. When somebody speaks to us because we're harboring sin in our hearts and they say, you need to repent, then our defensiveness may be just a product of our own guilt and shame. It may be the shame that we have because a child, a friend, a family member has strayed from the faith and we don't want people to look down on them. We don't want them to be uh, mistreated. We don't want people to think ill of them. And so we defend them passionately. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear the hard words of the Gospel. It's easier to always think, isn't it, that it's not our fault, that it's always someone else's fault because we're good people. But what if missing the significance, the press, what if missing the pain of these hard words results in our missing the gospel? That's, what's Paul's, that's Paul's concern. Paul's concern and passion in all of these verses is that his hearers, that his readers know the wonder, the majesty, the glory of Jesus Christ. If he has to offend them, to turn them away from their wickedness, so be it, that they might see just how glorious is their Lord. And glorious he is. That's also what Paul presents to them, to these foolish, bewitched Galatians who, says Paul, have, have seen with their very eyes Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified. Now that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? The Galatian Christians, who were Gentiles for the most part, so would have had no reason to be in Jerusalem at Passover during the time of the crucifixion of our Lord at Easter, and who lived significant distance from Jerusalem. They didn't live in the area. It's not like they could just come over for a minute and see what's going on in Jerusalem. So that it's very, very unlikely that any of the people who are reading Paul's letter for the very first time saw Jesus on the cross at all. So how can he say that they saw with their very eyes Jesus Christ clearly portrayed as crucified? Well, the answer comes in that language, clearly portrayed. Because Paul's using that language to describe what happens in the in the preaching ministry, in the presentation of the gospel through the proclamation of the word. What Paul's saying here is you saw Jesus crucified when you heard the message of salvation proclaimed. A message that makes the truth graphic. A message that says to you, see this. See Jesus upon the cross and know the significance, know the meaning of that event that Jesus died on Good Friday. It's actually interesting that Paul mentions the crucifixion. So often, Paul in his ministry of the gospel would not so much mention the crucifixion, though he would, obviously, but more often place the emphasis on the resurrection. That was so often the ministry of the Word. Indeed, that's why 
Paul was confronted by the living Jesus on the road to Damascus so that he could be certain that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so that he could go and say, Jesus Christ, the crucified one, yes, has been risen from the dead. And so, so often in his presentation, you think of Mars Hill, you think of the various ministries in the book of Acts where we can read about Paul's presentation of the gospel, you will almost invariably find that he places the emphasis on the resurrection. And yet here, he says, you've seen Jesus Christ as crucified. Why would he place the emphasis there, do you think, given what we know about the Galatian church? A church that was being tempted to believe, that was following after leaders who taught, that they could save themselves, that they had to save themselves by doing good works. What those good works we'll get to in time. But all you need to know is they believed that while Jesus was a good start, they had to contribute to be saved. They had to do things. They had to earn things. They had to accomplish things. They, they were adopting what is a very common and natural perspective on our relationship with God, that you, you have to do in order to gain, to get. You have to go to church. You have to give in the offering. You have to be nice. You have to, you have to, you have to. So why, in that context, would Paul say, listen, remember how you saw Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Saw it through the preaching of the Word. And it doesn't take long, does it, to see, again, to be reminded about why the Son of God incarnate in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, walked on the dusty roads of Judea, leading all the way and finally to Golgotha, where He willingly hung upon the cross, having His hands and feet nailed to the tree. That the Son of God came in the flesh because we were so utterly and so hopelessly lost in all of our sins. That sin that so easily convicts us. That sin that causes our consciences to be grieved. That sin that shames us. We can be laying in bed at night and suddenly it comes to mind. We can be driving in the car and it suddenly comes again. Can you believe that you did that thing? That you said that thing yesterday, the day, a year, ten years ago, twenty years ago? Can you believe that sin? The devil knows how to prompt our hearts and cause us to grieve and to give us hopelessness and shame. And the cross of Calvary is the antidote because the cross of Calvary is the story of a salvation so perfect, so profound that at its end, Jesus could say, it is finished. Our misery so hopelessly and, and so profoundly encapsulates us, enslaves us, prevents us from enjoying life until comes this man who is God upon the cross, that we might be saved. That's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus did it. You can't. He has. And you're free. So that in one fell swoop, the Apostle Paul in this opening phrase of, his, of our text is able to remind his readers of the very basic truth of the gospel. The truth that Jesus Christ's crucifixion proclaims to us in the depths of our need with the glory of His provision and the sufficiency of His sacrifice, the wonder of His love, 
which is the thing they were rejecting. That's what they were giving up. That's what they were refusing to accept. Now we know why the world does that. We know why the world rejects the message of salvation. We know that they think it's foolishness, that it's a myth, that none of it makes sense. A God-man, come on now. They think that this is cosmic uh, uh, cruelty on a, on a scale that's unknown, a God killing his own son. Come on now. But why do people in the church, why do some of us, even now, refuse to believe this? Covenant people of God who ourselves have clearly seen with our own eyes Jesus Christ portrayed before us as crucified. Oh, I know that because of that, the gospel will say things to you that convict you, that condemn what you're doing, that, that diminish your abilities, that destroy your self-esteem. Yes, to come to church is to hear that you are in yourself hopeless and helpless. And that is not the kind of message our world values and that you live with every day as you watch your TikToks and all the rest of it. I get it. And they may be things we prefer weren't true. We don't like it when mom and dad tell us that's wrong. You may not live that way. Or when the elder comes to our house and says repent and believe. We may not like the truth. And to be told that our only confidence is in another person is humbling and hard and frightening. To surrender your life totally into the hands of another is to let go of the only person you truly trust, which is yourself. Take a moment again to see the cross of Calvary and know who hang or who hung upon it because the person the gospel calls you to trust is none other than the crucified Messiah, the one who came that you might be saved. And so don't hold back. Don't trust your self-righteousness. Don't believe that you can do it on your own. But embrace this Savior. Here's a word, isn't it, to encourage the hearts of all of us. Even we who believe, because we believe, don't we, with faltering and failing strength. And we live in a world buffeted by all of these claims that we can find happiness and joy in the things of this world. And yet we discover, don't we, that in all the world's answers to the deepest needs that we have, none of them speaks a word of peace and hope like the cross of Calvary which reconciles us to our God because of our sin. We struggle with that emptiness in our hearts because we're sinners. We struggle with that grief and that guilt and that shame because we're sinners. What can possibly give us the confidence to worship and to praise God on a day like today? Blaming others, is that going to make your life better? Dismissing that voice inside your head that's telling you the truth, is that going to make you better? Why not just embrace this glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ? 
that you have a gracious, perfect, and amazing Savior who loves you more deeply than you'll ever know. So be encouraged in your heart. Be encouraged in your walk. Even we who love and serve the Lord and do so with faltering feet and failing hands. Your God loves you in Jesus Christ so perfectly that He sent His Son to die. Turn not away from Him, but turn always to Him. To Him who can equip you for life. It's not only the message of salvation that should have prevented the Galatians from slipping off the pathway of faith. It was also their personal experience that should have convinced them that the Judaizers, these theological professors and doctors and and deeply rooted, able thinkers who sounded so convincing that they were wrong. Not only did they only have to have the cross of Calvary to know they were wrong, all they had to do was examine their own lives to know that they were wrong. Because they, the Gentile Christians that they were, who had lived apart from God and apart from the covenant, who had spent all of their life, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, none of them knew God, not in the way of the faith, and, not had, and had, none of them had been raised in the things of the faith. Yet these Christians had experienced, by God's grace and power, a transformance, a conversion, a rebirth that is beyond our ability to explain. They had received the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Now remember, these are Gentile Christians. So how could they possibly have received the Holy Spirit, that transforming power of God, the one who makes them to suddenly believe, to see the majesty of God, to give their lives to the Lord, to transform their thoughts, their emotions, their actions, so that they were no longer the people they once were. They were now new creatures in Christ. How could they possibly imagine that they had received this life-sustaining, this life-renewing power because they had obeyed the law. It's, it's just not possible, is it? They didn't know the law. How could they have been obeying it? The only thing they heard about the law was when Paul came with the message of salvation to them and spoke the word of God's hope into their hearts and that they were free from sin, the sin that God illuminates by His law. But they, but they hadn't possibly. They couldn't. It's impossible. You, you think of someone in our world today who's living now and hasn't been raised in a family of faith, hasn't been to church ever in their lives, doesn't know anything about Jesus Christ. There are more people like that than you realize. But let's assume or let's think of someone like that. And you come to them and you speak to them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the light. And they come with you to church and they come to know Jesus Christ. They come to be transformed, renewed, as many of us, as indeed all of us must be. And, and now they say to you, yes, but, but I received that grace because I was such a good person before I was converted. You'd say, wait, what? what? No, that's impossible. That doesn't work. You didn't know God before you were converted. You didn't know the way of living. You didn't know what his, his will was. How could you possibly think that God in His saving power redeemed you because you were a good person? He redeemed you despite your sin. He redeemed you 
in the midst of your godlessness and wickedness, He came to you and opened your eyes, not because you were doing good, but so that you could see the good that He had done. So, so these Gentile Christians to whom Paul's now writing had been made alive by the power of the gospel preached to them, not by observing the law. Before they heard the gospel, their lives were under the power of sin. After they heard the gospel, their lives became changed. Only then could they speak about doing good. Only then could they speak about living for the Lord. Only then could they speak about striving after the will of God. They couldn't possibly think that God had blessed them because of it. Indeed, their blessing, their blessing was what made it possible. That's something we so often face, isn't it? Especially as a multi-generational, covenantally rich community which has blessings upon blessings that should not be diminished or, or dismissed in any way. We, we, God has been good to us as a church and a community in ways that are just unbelievable, profound, that makes other Christian communities jealous when they look at how the Lord continues to bless us. I mean, we're surrounded by the Lord's grace. We're surrounded by a stable community, a developed Christian culture, a, an ethos of service and sacrifice. Our children are raised in an environment where the things of the faith confront them daily as they go from home to school, even to work at times. And as a result of all of this, because we love and live in this very lovely bubble, we can begin to think that this is normal, that this is ordinary, and that this is a consequence of the choices we make. Let me demonstrate uh, that in a couple of ways. Think of a young couple getting married. We have marriages are coming up. It's marriage season soon enough. May 13th is our first, and then it gets busy. These young couples that are getting married. Well, let's maybe not think of them. Let's think of ourselves, we who are married, and let's think of ourselves when we were getting married. Did you think when you were getting married, did you think you could do it? Did you, did you think, this, this is going to be a breeze. Being married is no issue. How hard can it be? Look, mom and dad are doing it. Everybody else is doing it. can't be that hard, can it? Marriage is a breeze. And then the Lord blesses us with a child. And we think, how hard can it be? How can parenting? Come on. Everybody else is doing fine. It's easy. Or maybe we, we graduated from our Christian schooling whether it's at home or in the day school, and, and we've been surrounded by the faith, and now we're going to go to university or college, and, and probably, or, or maybe, uh, let's say, it's going to be a, a public uh, university or college. We think, well, that's okay. I can handle it, right? How hard can it be? I'm, I'm rooted in the faith. I'm strong in what I believe. I'll be able to navigate the halls of higher learning without any fear. It won't change the way I live. It won't change the way I think. Or maybe a little more uh, pointedly, um, how many of us are convinced that the writer of the Proverbs is wrong when he says, uh, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? Because you see, what we do is we take a little bit of fire into our lap. You see, what, what, what the writer of the Proverbs is talking about, of course, is immorality, particularly their adultery, right? Flirting with somebody that's not your spouse, 
maybe be in a relationship with, with a boyfriend or a girlfriend and, and f- the physical aspect of our, ma- our relationship gets a little, a little ahead of itself. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about playing with fire. And it doesn't have to be just that. Right? We can, we can find that a little bit of partying. Is it really a big deal if we go out and party? Is it really? Come on. I mean, doesn't everybody get a little bit drunk? A little bit of weed, really? A little bit of weed? Is that really going to be an issue? Come on. Just let's take the fire into our lap. We won't get burned. And why do we think that? Why do we live that way? Why do we struggle with those things in our community? Why do we struggle with the Christian lifestyle within our community? Isn't it because we think to ourselves, it's not a big deal, being a Christian, that is. Everyone I know is a Christian. And, 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 and I know what being a Christian requires. I mean, you just got to go to church. You give some money and an offering. You, being a Christian's easy. Just follow the steps. Tick the boxes. And you'll get to do what you want to. But what if none of that's true? What if being a Christian is a, is a miracle of God's sovereign grace, no less majestic and mighty in power, than the act of creation itself. What if being a Christian, to love and live for the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is as powerful an event as the raising of Lazarus when Jesus said, come out. What if all the blessings that we take for granted are not something we can just conjure up by doing right things but are the covenantal expressions of God's grace and goodness towards us in Jesus Christ, in His saving grace, without which we would be nothing. See, here's one of the unintended consequences of living in this lovely bubble that we call the covenant community. We think it's normal. It is not. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know your coworkers, some of whom are lovely, but most of whom are messed up suffering under the great weight of sin's curse. And now, tell them to start ticking the boxes and see if it works. Go to church, give them the offering, don't swear, and see if their life gets better. You cannot fix a life that way. What we take as typical should be taken, should be taken by us as a constant and abiding reminder of how great and glorious God's grace towards us is. We are so richly and profoundly blessed by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we can speak of great and glorious blessings as ordinary when they are anything but. And it ought to stun us. And it ought to bring us to our knees. And it ought ought to make us depend more, not less, upon the God of grace in Jesus Christ. The Galatians were rejecting the life that the Lord had worked in them by His Spirit. They were saying, we don't need the Holy Spirit in order to be blessed. We just need to do the right things, to handle the problems of life. They were walking away from the only source of blessing there is in this life. Does that mean that that as Christians we don't need to work hard at our Christian walk? Of course not. Putting to death the old nature and bringing to life the new is a demanding full-time job and it's challenging. It's hard work. But we do it. 
not to gain advancement, but because we have been so profoundly blessed. We don't do it so that we can get more. We do it because we've been given everything. And we must never fail to see that every blessing we've been given is never anything we've earned, but a gift of the God who is the overflowing fountain of everything good and who equips us to endure by His grace. That's how Paul ends this text. He says, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you not trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you have heard? Here Paul's talking about the journey, the pilgrimage, the walk. How you... How are you enduring? How are you carrying on in your Christian walk? You've been brought in to the Christian life because Christ died on a cross and did something you cannot do. And then you were enlivened to experience and enjoy the blessings of that cross by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You were saved by the cross. You were made alive by the Spirit. But now are you going to walk the rest of the journey on your own? Is that, is that the Christian Life, God pulls us out of the pit of sin. He washes us off, cleans us up, gives us a new outfit, and then puts us on the pathway of life and says, now go, go. you do it on your own. You go ahead and you, and you do this. You got it, buddy. There's a bit of a problem to that thinking, as Paul rightly notes. For the Galatian Christians, when they began their Christian walk with the Lord, did not find themselves suddenly in a better position, but in fact in a much worse When they became Christians, they suffered a great deal. It was not unusual in those days for Christians to suffer a great deal. They were ostracized from their communities, from their families. They were ostracized from their businesses. Sometimes they had to sell their homes, they had to sell their land, and they had to move. They suffered a great deal. And the suffering would only increase. We know that about the persecution of the Christian faith in the early days of the church. They suffered a great deal. And Paul says, did you suffer that, that transformative lifestyle, that new pathway of life, that uphill battle, that constant barrage of pressure to give up your faith? Did you suffer that, that challenge of walking with Jesus Christ for nothing? Did it not teach you how much you need the Lord? Did it not show you how hopeless and helpless you are apart from God? That's the point, isn't it? I mean, when you try to climb up Mount Everest, at some point somebody's going to say, buddy, you can't do it. You can't do it. You need a Sherpa. You need somebody to help you. You need somebody that can get you there because you're insufficient to this task. And in the Christian life, that's even more profoundly true, isn't it? In the Christian life, We come to understand that to walk each day as a believer, to endure in this faith, requires a grace from God to sustain us. There's a reason why we pray. Keep us in your care. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And and there's hope in there. There's, There's comfort in that. Because whatever we lose by virtue of our commitment to Christ, and we will lose... We will lose. The Lord's word is full of warnings to the church concerning the sacrifice they will have to give 
for the faith, whatever we'll have to lose on the journey of life, whatever we lose from a worldly perspective, maybe we should put it that way, we will gain far more from our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fear not those who can harm the body, but those, the one who can harm the soul. What profits it a man if he gains the world but loses his soul? Scripture is full of these warnings that says don't, don't cling to this stuff. Don't hang on to this stuff. Let it go that you may gain a greater reward. The Lord encourages, the Lord equips, the Lord enables His people to persevere in their walk though they might have to surrender all. He gives them strength and encouragement that they may gain all. For that is the God that we worship. That's what the language of this concluding portion of the text presents. It presents God to us as the supplier, the worker, the only one who can give to us what we need in order to survive, in order to succeed, in order to arrive at our destination in this life. Our destination, which is not this life, which is not material success, which is not fame, which is not any of the qualities our world pursues. We have as the goal of our life fellowship with God and His people in eternity because we know that everything around us is dust. We know that the world in which we live is empty. We know that it doesn't satisfy our greatest need. Although sometimes we forget it. But the Lord gives to us, not in sparse measure, but in abundance as He supplies our need in this life. In this life. That's the wonder of this text. Is that Paul's not saying God's going to bless you if you prove your worth at the end. If you get to that pearly gate and God says, yes, look at your record and you did some good stuff. You get to come in. No, God comes to you today to get you there because that's how committed He is to your arrival at His end. That's, that's what needs to fill our hearts with, with wonder for the God we worship. Christ died on the cross. The Spirit equips and enables us. The Father is committed to your eternity. Are you, are you committed to your eternity? Sometimes we surrender the provider of all we need for a handful of magic beans. And there is no beanstalk that arises. There's no magic goose laying golden eggs. There's no anything. We buy into the lies of our world. And we begin to believe the self-esteem doctrine. We begin to believe we're good enough, we're smart enough, and people should love us. That's what the Galatians were doing. Instead of enjoying the Lord's care in their lives, they were leaving behind His grace in order to set out on their own. I don't need your help. I can do this on my own. They were like some petulant child that had failed to understand the wealth that they had provided for just to prove that they were something. There is something in all of us of this tendency. We all tend to fall into this pit. 
Oh, we don't deny that we need the Lord for our salvation. We accept that He's the one that can gain us eternal well-being. But we tend to live each day as though we're able to do it on our own. Maybe that's a, an unfair accusation. Maybe you think that's not true. Do you begin each day with prayer? Are you earnestly before the face of God seeking His help for your day? Are you in His Word? Do you look to the Lord every day for help and strength? Do you try to make decisions only after praying, after coming before God and saying, Lord, lead me? Is the Lord's presence a vital aspect of your daily walk? Is His Word something that's close to your heart and to your hand? What spends more time filling your brain? The things of social media? Or the things of life and of grace and mercy? We know God has to save us so that we can enter heaven. We just don't think He needs to save us today for the challenges we face. But He does, and He will. For he is the God who is overflowing with grace towards us. That's what Paul wants his readers to see. He starts with some hard words. Foolish and bewitched. Paul is astonished at how the Galatians have so quickly lost sight of the blessing of God's grace in Jesus Christ. They've lost sight of his triune majesty, of Christ's death, the Spirit's provision, the Father's preserving grace. Why turn away from all of that? Why give that up? Why give that up for dust and emptiness? We would say the same thing to those among us who may be slipping away from the faith, thinking that the world or the philosophies of this world or the way of this world is better or at least as good as what they have in the faith. Don't be fooled. Don't be bewitched. Only God is able to bless But for us who see Christ, let us be encouraged. Let us be amazed. Let us be overwhelmed. As we examine our hearts in this coming week, it's a tough thing to do. It's a shameful thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. It's to admit that we need more, to come to the table hungry. Hungry in the sense that says, Lord, I'm, I'm weak and you're strong. I'm empty, but you're full. I'm foolish, but you're wise. That's hard for us to do. But when we see, when we turn our focus to the Lord, when we see what His Son has accomplished, what His Spirit's accomplishing, what He's accomplishing, then we ought to come ready. Ready to admit, I need Him. I need Him in all of His power. I need Him all of His grace. We can also experience, can't we, the spiritual malaise that comes over us, that overestimates our strength and undervalues the Lord's grace. But in light of God's word to us today, let's commit together to being wise and not foolish. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, what a wonder of your grace, a gift of your Son, the power of your Spirit, your preserving love, Where is there a God in all the world like you? Where is there anyone, anything in all the world that's like you? Oh, the world promises so many things. Promises so much happiness. Promises so much blessing. Promises so much deliverance from the burdens and the brokenness of this life. All we got to do is swallow this little red pill. 
Help us, Lord, to turn away from the foolishness of our world. And instead, O heavenly God and Father, rest in the life-giving power that is on display before us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.